Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to today's Sherlock's Success Stories podcast. I'm Sherlock's founder and editor, Georgie Courage Cole, and today I'm joined by a true industry disruptor, Connie Nam, the founder and CEO of jewellery brand Astrid and Mew. Born in 2012, today it is one of the UK's most loved affordable jewellery brands with six stores across the country, more opening soon, and a host of celebrity and influential fans. She's here today to tell us how she did it and offer, I hope, lots of words of advice and wisdom to budding entrepreneurs. Welcome, Connie. How lovely to be joined by you today. Hi, Georgie. So nice to be here with you. I've been waiting for this one for a while. My 10-year-old daughter is one of your biggest fans. She's like given me a list of questions um, I've got to ask you. I- I'm going to get started, though, with just your background. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing, your childhood, your education, like set the scene as to how you became the woman you are today? (laughs) That's a really big question. So I was born in Korea and then I went to the US when I was five and then went back to Korea. So I moved back and forth because of my dad's job. So he worked for the government. He was doing fundraise for the Korean government and he was seconded to the World Bank and the Korean embassy in the US. So I moved back and forth between Seoul and Washington, D.C., growing up in different cultures. And I think that's probably one of the major things that shape how I am today as a leader and as a business person, because I had to adapt to different cultures, but also different um, school systems, different languages and everything and just um, making new friends every time I moved around and then like I finished high school secondary school in the U.S. and then I went back to Korea because that's where we were always based so I went to Korea went to university there and then when I graduated what did you study at university I studied business actually I I was torn between art and business and then I went um, to the business route which is like opposites but I did business studies and then I, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. I vaguely knew that I wanted to make a lot of money and I knew a lot of, um, <laughs> and, and when I speak to other entrepreneurs, finally, a lot of um, entrepreneurial drive comes from this as well. But it's, but not, it's often there, not something you're allowed to say out loud. I'm sure you say yeah. that people often say, what do you love about what you do? And I'm like, I love connecting people and brands, but I also like making money. And it's sort of like, it's not very English to say that, or very female. Yeah, so I'm yeah, thrilled yeah, that yeah. you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it's a combination of everything, right? It's a combination of making money, but also having autonomy and being able to build something on your own. But I think at that time, money was a really big driver. I wanted to be like super independent, and I always wanted to grow up really quickly when I was a kid. Mm. I know that you t- spoke about this on my podcast earlier, but mm. you always like played CEO. You didn't want to be a princess, and that's exactly how I was. And I was a bit bored of being a kid and being dependent on my parents. And I just wanted to be independent as soon as possible. Mm. So, and a lot of, um, you know, smart kids were going into consulting or banking at that time. 
tech like didn't exist, entrepreneurship didn't exist. At that time, going into investment banking was sexy. So I went into investment banking, spent four years there, started in Seoul and then moved to Hong Kong. So that was a real eye-opener, being completely independent on my own in a different country. Which bank did you work for? So I worked for Credit Suisse. So I started there in Korea and then moved over with, within the same bank. And then I worked at HSBC for a year before I quit. It gave me a good financial grounding, mm-hmm. but I was mm-hmm. also like equally completely burnt out. I learned so much during the process, but I was working from like, I guess like from nine to 12 on average. And sometimes I do all nighters. And that was kind of badge of honor at that time in wow. investment banking. It just wasn't sustainable. I was just tired all the time, like really like grumpy all the time. So I, um, yeah, I, I just decided to quit after my last bonus, like right after money came into my bank account, I quit. What year are so, we in then? So, so that was t- beginning of 2008. And that was like right before Lehman Brothers collapsed. So I guess like may- maybe I had foresight. I knew that like this, <laughs> this industry wasn't going anywhere. So I quit and then I came to London to do my MBA at London Business School. And I was trying to find myself at that time. I was soul searching, just trying to find what I love doing, what my passion is, all the classic stuff. And I thought like, I love fashion, just like every, just, every other girl. Can I just ask, Connie, you came in and you decided to do an MBA. I'm just yeah. always interested in, in what, was that because you wanted to do something entrepreneurial or you thought that was just a really valuable attribute? I think it was the credentials probably. Um, I, I'm a bit embarrassed to say it was... Um, I guess like an achievement that I needed to tick off my box because I um I knew like going into investment banking getting my first job I always wanted to do an MBA and that's what I said a lot of my friends were doing it and it was something I just like always wanted to do and I kind of wanted to consolidate all my experiences and um, have a more strategic view of businesses looking back do you feel like it was a really worthwhile thing to do and something you'd advise others to do in certain ways, it was really valuable. I think just taking that time off for two years and reflecting back on my career, really deciding what to do. Obviously, like it was a very expensive way to do it. In that sense, it was good. And also like just consolidating all my knowledge and just confirming what I did was like were the right things to do, I think were valuable. But in terms of the academics, um, and things that I learned, a lot of people that didn't do investment banking or that didn't have consulting background, I think they took a lot out of it. So if um, someone is in a retail background currently and wants to gain knowledge in financial modeling or like, you know, strategic analysis, I think it's really valuable. But mm-hmm. when I went into classes, like a lot of the knowledge were things that I knew already. So in terms mm-hmm. of that, I don't, I don't think it was as valuable, but if, in terms of the connection I made with my friends and just being around like-minded people and just taking that time off to reflect back, I think that was so valuable. And it's yeah. so different from, when I was at uni, like when I was at university, I didn't have any money to just like go on expensive holidays. But at this point, I saved a lot of money from investment banking and I was very independent. So I was able to do a lot of travels. And I think, um, yeah, just gaining really valuable friendships was probably the most. Um, yeah, with like-minded yeah. people. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So often it's like being on the ground where you learn. But yeah, as you said, it gave you access to those people in that network. So sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying you'd always love fashion. I always love fashion. So I vaguely wanted to get into the fashion industry. So I started applying to fashion jobs. So the only companies in fashion or like beauty, um, 
that were hiring MBAs were probably like big companies like L'Oreal and LVMH. So I did get an internship at LVMH, worked in their strategy department. But then I decided, I mean, I, I think I romanticized um, fashion industry, but it was so different from what I was expecting. It was very corporate. Um, and uh, also I wasn't able to get the job that I wanted. I wanted to get something tangible. I wanted to be in marketing or products, but because of my um, investment banking background, the only placement I could get was in strategy or finance department. And that's just not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do real stuff. So uh, when I graduated, I started Astrodemy as a project. And actually one of my friends from the MBA helped me out initially. So we worked together for a couple of months and she decided to, go find a real job and <laughs> I, I stuck it out at the project yeah, I loved I loved that you were an intern at LVMH I mean a successful banker and and there you were interning at the age of like what in, in just like your late yeah, yeah amazing yeah. and people always say like <laughs> how do you make a career change happen later in life like you're never too I mean I, we've had interns who've been literally in their 30s 40s I think it's it's great it's never too late obviously you need some financial support but um I think that's brilliant so the project that you were working on the Ashton you decided to continue mm-hmm. and where did the idea come from for Ashton how did that come together I always loved jewelry and I grew up with jewelry and jewelry was um one like category of accessories that my mom was so obsessed with and as a child like we used to travel a lot to different countries and my mom would always stop by market stalls and small boutiques and find these little gems so every single piece that she had in her drawer had a meaning and some kind of sentimental value but when I tried to buy jewelry on my own in the high street like everything was so stale and boring to be honest or intimidating so I wanted to kind of bring that sentiment and I reflected back and I used to go to this really small boutique back home in Korea that was right next to my university and the owner was there she was the jewelry maker and above all, she was so friendly. So I would just go in just to chat to her and have coffee with her. And then I'd end up buying something. So I think mm-hmm. she was building a community there. I just wanted to, I was just drawn to her and obviously like her designs as well. And I think she was building that community without knowing it. So I wanted to kind of combine all these elements so sentiment, travels, as well as community and create something within the jewelry space. And obviously from a very like business perspective, I also saw a gap in the market. So like in terms and of- what, what, what was the market? What did the market look like? At yeah. that time, so yeah. you launched so, in 2012. What yeah, that's a like? really good question because the space changed so much during that time. At that time, it was either you know the cheap high street jewelry, you go into Topshop or Zara and buy something that you go, you know, you'll you'll take you wear for clubbing, and then it breaks and you lose it and it's fine. Yeah. Or, <laughs> and your finger goes green. Because yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or like you go, you get something pretty expensive. Or like there's the boring, like you know, you know, big scale brands on Oxford Street, or yeah. like the really high end jewelry brands like Tiffany's or Cartier which are not everyday jewelry. So I thought there's a gap in the market for something that's um, accessible, but also equally well-made and well-branded. And if you look at the apparel market, there, there are so many cool brands in that segment, but in jewelry, it just didn't exist at that time. But now mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot more you know, exciting jewelry brands that pop up, which I think is a really good thing for the industry because jewelry mm-hmm. has been such a 
stale market compared to, you know, like handbags, shoes, or uh, other accessories or apparel. Mm. So that's, that's what it looked like back then. My team were discussing the other day how, how, you know, the market is busier than it was. And and Mm. there are, there's been a lot of activity in the market, but you do, you and a few really stand out as having a really strong identity and a strong brand. Oh, thank you. How did you come up with that I mean it's such an important part of the process isn't it I mean so many people get my friend who's a designer is gonna come up with my branding I mean you can Mm. obviously you can evolve your branding and tweak it as we've done over the years who did that for you how did you come up with the name my daughter's dying to know where the name how did you come up with the branding and the name and and how much emphasis did you put on that yeah, that's a really good question. So I wanted to um, put together a name that's non-jewelry specific, first of all, because I wanted the option to expand into lifestyle. And I wanted to sound very fashiony because I wanted to create a cool jewelry brand. And I also wanted this um, name to capture my background of growing up in the East and the West. So Astrid is a Swedish name and Mew is a Japanese name. And they both have um, backstories. So actually this backstory was created by working with a branding consultant. So Astrid Mm -hmm. is inspired by my sister and Miu is inspired by myself. So Astrid is a creative, she's an artist. My my sister is a musician, by the way, and she um, lives with her famous musician boyfriend. She happens to um, have dated a lot of musicians as well. And she lives in Camden. She's an introvert. She loves going to galleries and exhibitions and she loves- She sounds fabulous. Yeah, yeah, she is. (laughs) And, And she loves hanging out with a very small group of friends and she's really into you know sustainability and all of these things and Miu is an expert she's an entrepreneur she has an international upbringing she has a large group of friends and she's single um obviously now she, I'm not single I've got um, <laughs> I've also got kids but like <laughs> she's single she loves to party and all of these things and I thought these are like really good to inspirations behind who I want our customers to be at the same time so that's um yeah so that's where I the love that <laughs> I love these two characters that are polar yeah yeah that and a it's a product um, that can work for both that's brilliant yeah exactly and it's um it's such a powerful tool for our branding internally as well because whenever we launch a store or whenever we launch a campaign or a collection we always think like, oh, is this the Mew collection? Is this an Astrid and Mew mm. Astrid collection? Or is this a combination? And what percentage is Astrid and what percentage yes. is Mew? And can you see it on both? I always say to, to my team, we need to mood board. There are different, we've got different readers and we need to just have clear vision of all of them and, and see yeah. that it, it fits across enough of them. It doesn't have to fit all of them. It has to fit across enough of them. That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So you launched in 2012, you launched with a website. Mm-hmm. Um, who did that? Was that an easy process? Did you work with an agency? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's a, you can spend hundreds of thousands. You can spend, you know, these days via Shopify, et cetera. You can spend yeah. very little. What was your, <laughs> well, you know, uh, you've learned a lot along the way, I'm sure. But what what was your approach Yeah, very good question. So I found this guy through a friend who my friend told me that he can build a website. So I was like, okay, like I knew nothing about websites. So I hired him and he built the website for 500 pounds. 
Um, and like, obviously, like I had a graphic designer who I, I paid a, a lot more than 500 pounds, but the website was built for 500 pounds and it ended up crashing all the time. And I like my mom was probably the only person going onto the website every day. <laughs> like, a lot of traffic was coming from Korea and the website was crashing and the developer actually like disappeared. Like after a couple of weeks, so I had to replatform on this platform called OpenCart. Back then, Shopify wasn't a thing, and OpenCart was mm. a Shopify equivalent. So at that time, I think I probably spent like five thousand pounds. But the initial launch was with five hundred pound, a five hundred pound website. So that's how I launched it. And my so biggest you spent a bit more on the front end. Um, yeah, to get it look looking on brand. Yeah. But- yeah it's really hard to translate front-end design into the website. So it actually didn't exactly look like how it was designed either. So yeah, that's like another story. Talk to us about getting the product off the ground because, you know, there's web and and branding and all of those things. But, you know, you've got to have a great product to launch with. Yeah. Um, who were you designing it? Did you have, who had those skills? And what did the collection look like when you launched? And, and how did you make it happen in terms of suppliers? And- yeah, yeah. Yeah, really good question. So I um, designed everything because I was the only person, like literally. So I would have freelancers for graphic design and web and like a PR agency, but I designed everything. So I would just like sketch things out. And I like happened to find a really good supplier back home in Korea. So she is um, around my age and she never intended to be a jewelry supplier. So she actually wanted to be a ski instructor, but her dad was running the business and her dad happened to pass, um, pass away and she inherited the business. So her heart was never in the supply side, but she really aspired to the brand side and all of these. So I think she kind of like loved what I was doing and she was really bought into the vision. So she helped me out a lot in translating the design because she knew all the technicalities behind um, how to manufacture and everything. So she taught me so much. So everything I know about jewelry and manufacturing, she taught me everything. And she actually allowed me to just produce samples so I can put them up on the website and order them after I got orders. So, you know, like when you first start out, you only have 20 people coming to your website every day. So you'd be lucky if you get one sale a day. So I used to remember all the customer names. So she would allow me to just produce samples and then order. So I had a lot wow. of Wow. So you were on a pre-order, pre-order yeah, basis. Yeah. yeah. So I was so, so lucky. Yes. But, but what was your what was your speed to produce the product? How quickly could you turn the product around? Yeah, she could she could produce the product around in three to four weeks at that time, which is um amazing. But I quickly found figured out which items would sell. So for those designs, I would put more order in over time. But initially, that's how I started it. Yeah, I wanted to introduce, I guess, like fashion jewelry that looked like fine jewelry, which um, mm. is demi, like essentially demi-fine demi category, which was a really niche category back then. There's a lot of brands that, that are doing that at that time, but I think we were the only um, brands that were doing it. So press picked it up really quickly. So the first couple of weeks, we hired a PR agency we were on the Grazia shopping list and also stylist um, shopping list, which was a really big deal back then um, mm, when influencers well, didn't really exist and and everything. So yeah, that really gave me confidence, I think. Yeah. So so back to press. I mean, how did you get that? You know, because yeah, Grazia back then was like huge, wasn't it? it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a holy grail. Uh, you know, it really God. I'm, do you remember when it launched? How exciting it was, wasn't it? How did you make that happen? 
Yeah, I think it was money best spent. You can't, it's uh, now it's really hard to calculate the ROI on it, but I think the mm. brand awareness and what that leads you to afterwards, like I think it's massive. So I would definitely encourage people to do that or now like, or hire someone who can do influencer outreach, like in current times, obviously. But back then, like hiring a PR agency, that was probably the be- one best and biggest investment I made at that time. And just hiring the right agency, I think is important because we were so small. I wanted to make sure that we get an agency who's small enough and hungry yeah. enough to put us at as the priority. Um, So it was these two young PR agents. I think they were in their late 20s. They used to work for bigger agencies, but they decided to start their own thing and they just poured their heart into it because we were one of their first clients. And um, I guess like same with the supplier, they bought into the vision of it and they got really excited whenever, you know, we got featured somewhere. So I think that really helped and that was a really good partnership. Yeah, God, great advice. I think, you know, you don't want to be a, a small fish, do you? In the big mm-hmm, pond and, yeah. and well, when your budget is so precious and you're starting off, what were the big challenges at launch? Do you remember? What did you find? I mean, for us, it was building our database. That was like the real mm. focus. What mm. what for you, what was hard from those not having enough hours in the day, not having enough, not having enough help probably, but yeah, do you remember what, what sticks out as sort of the hardest moments? I think it's everything. I think it's just gaining traction. So whether it be like getting Instagram followers, getting the building that database, like everything, getting that traffic on the website. So we just had to do everything and fire at all different angles and getting that traction initially. I think, um, yeah, I, I think we, I just needed to be really patient and try yeah. all different things. Who was the first person you hired internally? Yeah. So the first person I hired is, um, she's called Sarah and she's our head of marketing currently. So I hired her one year into the business in 2013. So we had, um, so she worked for another small jewelry brand and we had the same PR agency and she was only 24 at that time. And she was basically running that business from my eyes. So we kept in touch. Um, we went for drinks regularly and we were just friends. And I knew that, you know, if when I had the budget, I wanted to hire her. So I did one year in. And, and after her, what, what, where did you start to invest in terms of manpower? So in terms of manpower, so the next, um, so she was doing, basically doing everything at that time for me, like customer services, like everything. And then she, her role evolved into marketing. But the next big hire was our head of operations. Um, now she's heading our international expansion. And then I guess like finance was another thing. The major hires kind of happened towards later part of the business. So in the last two years or so. So now we have a retail director. We have people in culture director. We have a product director. So those were sort of the key, key hires along the way. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And when did social media come into the foreground? Like, uh, and can you talk to us about? how much of a part that has played you know you're a real success story in terms of yeah how you've worked with influencers and yeah. community with them yeah social media is such a huge part of the business and we wouldn't be here without social media so w- when I hired a PR agent equally I reached out to bloggers at that time influencers wasn't a term that we used it was bloggers and I just reached out to bloggers that I liked and some responded some didn't respond and I just gift things out and um yeah and like I I really saw traction from gifting to bloggers so and also with social media, we did we were everywhere. We we're on Twitter, we we're on Facebook, and when Instagram started, we were on Instagram everywhere. But I quickly realized that Instagram is probably the way to go forward because it was very image heavy, and we were gaining mm. a lot of traction. And a lot of the bloggers or influencers that we worked with were on Instagram. So from 2013, I think I quickly just focused on Instagram at that time. And what do you think the, I mean, you talked about gifting, which is an interesting one. It can be so successful, can't it? It can be so mm. effective gifting. Um, what advice would you give to people when it comes to gifting? Be selective. Yeah, yeah, be selective and make sure that they're on brand with you. Because sometimes mm. like we gift or I guess like we worked on paid collaboration with influencers that are, you know, really big and are, um you know, quite influential in the market or like our competitors work with. Um, but if they're not on brand, they don't necessarily um, convert or are effective. Yeah. Whereas like if they're very on brand, like even if they have a small number of following, they would bring a lot of traction. So just defining who you are as a brand, who your target customers are and aligning that with the influencers that you work with, I think is so important. So important. And in those early years, what were the moments when things started to snowball or that you thought, wow, this is this is working, I'm getting somewhere? What were the highlights? There, there are so many highlights, but I think going into Selfridges for the first time was a big highlight for me because Selfridges was the you know, key, key stock is that we wanted to work. So they started buying our products, I think in 2016. And then eventually like we now have concessions and self-riches, but that was probably one of the pinch me moments. And also getting our in-store services, right. Having that omni-channel experience and getting that business model, right. With um, welding and piercing and tattooing and engraving, all of those things is a real highlight because once we had that, like it was so easy for us to, I guess, like get influencer traction and also like coverage on press or whatever. And also like roll out those stores um, equally. Mm -hmm. The economics just worked out really well. And one of my recent, um, highlights is collaborating with Susan Kaplan so we're launching that collection tomorrow which you're you'll be coming to the press dinner but can't um, wait yeah it's so exciting it's like you know one of the excited like most exciting moments in the history of the business just because like Susan's someone that I've been admiring for such a long time and Mm. like after meeting her in person I admire her even more but just um you know just like the female power and uh, she she has three daughters that she um 
raised as a single mother and just like her whole story is so inspiring but her whole collection and her curation I like love and admire and her brand as well so collaborating with Susan um, has been a real highlight for the business well massive massive credit for you as you say her ability to curate and pick out the best is second to none so yeah amazing yeah, exactly. amazing yeah. that she's chosen to collaborate <laughs> with you, you should yeah be so proud. yeah yeah it was I mean it was so nice because I told her that I'm admiring her for such a long time and she she said equally she's been admiring Astrid and you and me for a long time which was um such a uh, I don't know it was so, so nice to hear and so humbling yeah uh, and what, where does celebrity fit in like ha, has there been a, an influencer which has really excited you from, from our experience in terms of like traffic or the return on business um I don't I think it's pretty blurred between celebrity and influencer especially now influencers are so powerful mm. um but in terms of like celebrity when Jessica Alba wore one of our classic gold hoop earrings that was a real pinch me mo- moment because yeah. she's she's such a yeah like i, I love she's jessica cool. alba yeah she's so yeah. cool yeah and she's, she's also like, an entrepreneur business person yeah like, and she's yeah. kind of grown up but modern and yeah yeah i mean she's a huge celebrity and i have a massive girl crush on her but at the same time she's so relatable she seems so down yeah. to earth and like she's also a a business owner so yeah I I just love seeing her wear our stuff and like obviously when you wore our gold hoops I love that as well oh Um, you're very (laughs) and your your price point is amazing Connie um how much of a factor has that been I mean obviously that's determined to an extent by you know your cost of goods Mm. but you know how much in the sort of early days did you consider that you wanted to be at a certain level in the market Yeah, I mean, it's not the most important aspect of the brand, but I think it is um, a key aspect. And it's probably like one of the reasons why our customers shop with us. I want to make sure like I I, like firstly, when I first started the business, I saw this gap in the market for, I guess, accessible luxury demi fine jewelry. So that was sort of like how, um, you know, I I thought about pricing. And now the way I think of it is I want to make sure that the pricing is um, inclusive that people like are able to afford it. Um, it's not the cheapest. People can obviously like go to Zara or H&M and get a cheaper version, but we also focus on quality. So we want to make sure that it, quality jewelry is accessible and inclusive for everyone. And do you feel like as you get more established, you can slowly increase your prices or does that just happen because you do more elaborate stuff? Yeah, so it's a combination. So our existing pieces, the core pieces, we wouldn't raise our prices necessarily. Obviously, like if the raw material costs go up, we might have to increase slightly, but we are introducing more premium lines. So for instance, we're launching solid gold range soon um, next month. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. And like we have the bracelet welding, which is made out of solid gold. So price point for those are a bit higher. So we're um, going into different categories. So, and we also um, introduced lab grown diamond collection in 2019, which we, we are exploring currently. We're developing that range again and um, uh, semi-precious gemstones. So we will be going up in prices in certain categories, but we will have the core affordable range. The core. So, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Um, you've mentioned welding a couple of times. My daughter and I went off on a little girl's trip to your Westman Grove store and had welds and bracelets. I cannot tell you how much we both adore them. And, uh, they are the prettiest 
most delicate, fine pieces of jewelry. I just adore them so much. I mean, we've had it since the beginning of July. Where are we yeah. now? End of September. It's going strong. I mean, I, I, I'm so thrilled with it. It's gorgeous. Yeah. So, I mean, welding is something you offer in your stores alongside piercing. I, I came and had my mm-hmm. second and third holes re-pierced actually in your store. Uh, you also do tattooing. Mm-hmm. Uh, to my husband's delight, you, uh, <laughs> you didn't have a tattoo artist there that day of the week. That I, I can totally see that for your business, and it's interesting how you talk about those like that experiential nature of your stores and how that's great for press and marketing. And you also said you're launching three stores. Talk to us about having bricks and mortar stores. You know, there has to be a really damn good reason to have them mm. these days, doesn't yeah. it? H- have those experiences been a huge part of it? Talk to us a bit about those individually and your strategy for stores. Yeah, that, that's such a good question. For us, it's a huge part of the business. Contrary to, you know, how physical retail gets a bad rep these days, it's such an important aspect of our business. And it's grown to be 50% of our business, actually. Is and that we right? wouldn't, wow. Yeah, yeah. So we started as a digital first brand. And even just up to 2019, um, 70, 80% of our business came from online. But like and obviously like last year with covid um it was predominantly online but now we're tracking 50% of our revenues from retail which is amazing and i think key wow. is to offer something that's very different from what people can get online so if you look at our stores um majority of our sales come from services not products and people are encouraged to buy products online so just providing that something different for the same customer i think is firstly mm. really important and mm. also like one of our key strategies is to create a unique experience in every single neighborhood that we go into so we try to go into like really cute streets of each neighborhood and we try to kind of like mimic the street we're in so for instance like in seven dials it's much more young so the like fit out would be much younger and more casual whereas our Notting Hill store which is um uh, uh, in a more affluent area, we made it a bit more elegant and elevated in terms of decor. So like having very like customized design, depending on where we are, is also like really important. It's very clever. It, it's it's a great experience. You're obviously drawing people in for the services and then upselling to them with products. I mean, yeah, I get it. Um, you've got six stores. You said you're you're opening three more before the end of the year. Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So wow. we were going That's to we were impressive. going to phase them out, but um the leases just took longer because of COVID. I think landlords are just like really um, nervous. We're actually launching all of them in fourth quarter in time for Christmas, which is fantastic. Wow, and where are they going to be? So they'll be in Cold Drops Yard in King's Cross. And yeah. we're reopening in Kings Road. So we had a pop-up in Kings Road. So we're going back um, a couple of doors down on the same like area where all the French brands are. So Great. we're there. And also we're opening in Fubert's place in Carnaby Street oh, area. Amazing. And uh, I only talked about international expansion. Uh, what does that look like and how's that going? Yeah, so we um, launched our first non-English website in May. So we launched our German website and we relaunched our US website. So those are the two markets that we're trying to tackle this year and next year because that's where a lot of our traffic after the UK are coming from, from our online. And and with the US, we did a couple of pop-ups in 2019, which was so successful. People were queuing up for um, our store pop-up to open. So we know that the demand is there, that our fan base is there. So we're looking at opening a store 
um, early part of next year for the U.S. For Germany, probably second half of next year. And again, is that with those the, with those services? I can just so see you in Berlin. I think you've been so clever. How there's a bit of edge to your yeah. brand because yeah, you have this you have this kind of very millennial friendly, you know, blush pink, my favorite color, gold. <laughs> but you you've got this like tough edge, which is so clever. It stops it being sickly and makes it modern and makes it cool and yeah, it just ties in with you know the piercing and the tattooing and the it, it's it's really smart it's it's yeah, really smart yeah, thank you um, thank you yeah the, the the edge is probably the astrid side the artist and she's got tattoos and yeah that's so your sister in camden that's yeah. not you in southwest <laughs> london yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um can you just talk to me i mean god we could talk on this for ages but can you just tell me a little bit about how you funded the business there's a lot of bricks and mortar uh that's a lot of cost um did you fund it personally initially? I, I know you have raised money along the way. Mm. Can you can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that journey? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And it's like probably the most important thing in starting and running a business. So mm. I um I funded it myself initially for the first three years. So I had um quite a lot of savings. Um I was quite lucky because I worked in investment banking. Um mm. I made a couple of investments that were quite successful at that time. So um, I was able to fund my business school as well as the business so I could run for three years without taking any salary. And then I hit a wall. So I wanted to expand different marketing channels and also open a store. So I did an angel round. I raised um, around half a million at that time. Um, and then I raised another like very small round with it, those existing angel investors. And then in 2019, we took institutional money. So a family office came, a German family office came in, hence the German market as well. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, came in and they um, bought out most of the angel investors. So the angel investors that came in, they, okay. made, they, they made 10 times their money. And wow. Um, yeah, That's so a that, great. That's a great return. They <laughs> must have been thrilled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were super happy. Um, and how did you, that family office, the institutional money, how did that happen? How did you, you know, how did you find them? Yeah. Do you have advisors? How did that work? Yeah. So it kind of came organically. I wasn't necessarily looking for money because our stores and also like our stores are really profitable because we just need a really small space. Like our typical square footage is 400 to 800 square feet. And we're never on the main street of the area. We're always like sort of on the side street. So we've been profitable. So I didn't really need the money. And one of our suppliers that are based in London actually introduced me to uh, Marcus, who's the CEO of the fund uh, of the family office. And Mm -hmm. um, just saying like, uh, just telling me, oh, like he's looking to um, set up a fund that invests in jewelry brands. The reason being is he used to be the CEO of Baccarat in Paris. And he also ran Swarovski America. So he's a very seasoned executive in jewelry. And he just had this vision to set up a fund. Um, So I just met up with them to make industry contact, just to bounce ideas. And we just hit it off and we just stayed in touch. And then like I went on mat leave with my second with Sky. And then when I came back, I thought, oh, like maybe maybe I should take some money just to have some buffers. So I started talking to him. And it just happened organically. And I knew um, we were so aligned in our vision. And also because he is an operator, he knows what building a team is like and what the pain points are of a CEO um, Mm. versus a complete financial investor who would just like think about money and 
like just the commercial aspects. So I really liked um, his way of investing. And I just thought like our values were aligned. Amazing. Got to find a jewelry fund. That sounds quite niche to me. But, yeah, um, yeah, super anyways, niche. <laughs> the stars aligned. Although you, you said you got lucky. Someone posted something the other day that said she didn't get lucky. She just worked really hard. I quite like that. I wanted to screen grab it and keep it. Um, how, how big is your team today? So right now we've got um, around 110 people, more than half is in retail because we have like a lot of manpower in the stores, including the piercers and um, welders and tattoo artists who are all like our full-time employees. Sure. That's a pretty sizable team and you've got two young children. I mean, it's cliche, it's cliche, but we've got to have a chat. How do you do it? What advice for mothers? I mean, talk to us about being a mother and how you juggle it all, how you feel about both roles in your life. Oh my goodness. Wow, that's a really tough question. I need to get advice from you raising three kids. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, it's so tough. I'm not going to lie. And um, I had two kids back to back and the second one was completely unexpected so (laughs) I was um pissed off at Joe my husband for like (laughs) two years like since the day I was pregnant with Sky like until like the first year but um I mean now I'm coming out of the tunnel but like honestly I I mean like I don't know whether it's appropriate to say this but I really didn't enjoy pregnancy I also didn't enjoy like the baby phase say that (laughs) you can definitely say that of course you can yeah I'm saying this so that I I can empower mothers that are struggling (laughs) yeah I did not like being pregnant I think that's totally (laughs) fine <laughs> so I did not think baby like being pregnant. Is yeah. Hard. Yeah, yeah. I like I it was just so tough and I I felt horrible about it as well. I just felt guilty because I just didn't like I don't know, like spending time with babies. But now I'm enjoying it a lot more. They can we can have a proper chat. I can go to the coffee shop mm-hmm. with Summer. Like we went to uh we went for afternoon tea one of the days and went shopping on the King's Road and I really enjoyed that. Now she's like my mate. But yeah. like the whole time like the first three years it's hard uh, or, when you don't get years. a lot back yeah yeah so the first um I think four is probably the magic number once like summer hit four it just became significantly easier um it's a good age uh, yeah it's a really good age like really cute still slightly we, random, we both, so pretty cute. yeah <laughs> we both we both have a four-year-old and trust me I have a 10-year-old who rolls her eyes and stuff at the and the four-year-old is just heaven. So if we could just pause time now. Yeah, then, yeah. You know, well, there's no agenda. They're just happy. It's, it's yeah, lovely. Yeah. But but how do you, you know, you work, Connie, in, and, you know, your story is amazing and it all sounds like it's kind of fitted into place. I, I can't stress to people how incredibly hard you work and you do make it sound quite easy, but that I know you are a massive grafter and, you know, you yeah. throw everything at, Ashley, you. How do you and, and you know you've got a heavenly family. How do you do that? Is it via help? Is it <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you need lo- loads of support and help. So I'm not going to lie. Like I don't skimp on childcare. You know, I've got a full time nanny. I also have a weekend babysitter. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to sugarcoat this or like you know pretend like I can do it all. So like without help, I won't be able to do it. And I still struggle because I just have no margin. Still in the evening, I need to put them to bed. And also like Saturdays, I still need to play with them and like as well as Sundays. But just having loads of help and having a really supportive husband, I think is really important, supportive partner or husband. I so agree. Is he there? Is he your sounding board? Do you kind of bounce yeah. everything off him? Yeah, 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 everything. 
Yeah, I mean, we do um, uh, uh, vice versa. So like, he's so good, like technically, and he's an investor. So he looks at a lot of businesses. So whenever I have like business questions or anything, like he's got, he's just got a different perspective to what I see, like being stuck in the business. And I, I typically give him a lot of like people advice um, in his firm, like how to navigate things you play to each other's strengths (laughs) yeah the female the female touch is quite useful for them sometimes I think (laughs) and what advice do you have for others who are the sort of next generation the generation coming up I mean I remember when I started Sherlock's just so looking up to people who were more established and being so inspired Mm. by them and we talked about this I think like growing up I was inspired by successful women and wanting to role play being a successful woman um you know would you advise people to go for it and is there anything more kind of granular you can you can offer them in terms of advice yeah I definitely um tell people to go for it and like unless you try you'll never make it work and it like just don't think too much because you learn so much by just doing things like uh, more than anything that you could have thought about but also like at the same time, know what your strengths and weaknesses are. Just being self-aware is really important because that determines what kind of help you get. Play to your weaknesses in terms of hiring. Hire people that are good at things that you're not good at. For instance, like I'm really good at like generating ideas, like being strategic and everything. But um, there are people who are much better in execution and people management that, than I am. So I ha- like look for those qualities when I um, hire out my senior management team. So just knowing all of those um, and and also like just be patient because it takes time to build, especially if you're trying to build a brand, it takes time. Um, so just be patient and things don't always go as planned. So just be ready for that. I, I guess those are sort of the advice that I'd give. Be patient. I think that's a good one. Susan Kaplan is obviously launching imminently, um, but what you've talked about, a fine jewelry range, and um, so there's obviously lots of innovation happening, but what's your future look like? What do you want it to look like? So I want it to be a global cult brand. I think we've built a really good um, community in the UK, especially around London. But I think we can really take this globally in those like key cities like New York, Berlin, like all these cool cities, but also like continuing to innovate because whenever I bump into like industry peers or like someone in the, the industry, they always say that even the more established brands look to us for innovation. So I want to continue to be at the forefront of innovation. So the, those are the two things, like global and innovation. No time to rest on your laurels. Connie, <laughs> thank you. Well, I'm sure you're going to continue to go from strength to strength. And uh, I cannot wait to see the Susan Kaplan collaboration in the flesh. Check it out. It'll be online when this podcast comes out. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Georgie. That's it for today. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, leave us a comment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Subscribe.
subscribe to our podcast, tell your friends to listen too, and we'll be back soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.